Chapter 12 of Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria James. Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. Chapter 12 Trade and Commerce. The chapter begins with a quote The great ships which pass between the old and the new lands are shuttles weaving a glorious web. Already arbitration has been fully spelled out upon the pattern, and now comes the motto, Peace and Goodwill Forever. Close quote. The United States of America furnished the only example in the world's history of a community purely industrial in origin and development. Every other nation has passed through its military stage. In Europe and in Asia, in ancient times as well as in modern, Social development has been mainly the result of war. Nearly every modern dynasty in Europe has been established by conquest, and every nation there has acquired and held its territory by force of arms. Men have been as wild beasts slaughtering each other at the command of the small, privileged classes. The colonies of America, on the other hand, were established for commercial purposes, and generally the land they acquired was obtained by purchase or agreement, and not by conquest. Devoted to industry, the American people have never taken up the sword, except in self-defense or in defense of their institutions. Never has the plow, the hammer, or the loom been deserted for the sword of conquest. Never has the profession of arms been honored above or even equally with other professions. Indeed, before the Civil War, soldiers were objects of popular ridicule, and even now, when almost every American above 40 years of age has either himself shouldered a musket or has relations who have fought for the unity of the country, the soldier of fortune, a type common among other people, is unknown. Such a man as the sanguinary author of Under Fourteen Flags, a book descriptive of his butchering of fellow men under fourteen different flags, would provoke among Americans feelings of repugnance and disgust. American regiments are regiments of workers. Emblazoned on their banners are not the names of cities sacked or of thousands slaughtered, but the names of inventors, civilizing influences, labor-saving machines. By this sign shall ye conquer was also the divine prediction for them, but the symbol was the plow, not the cross-shaped hilt of a sword. The two armies are those which the poet Holmes has so well contrasted. One marches to the drumbeat's roll, the wide-mouthed clarion's bray, and bears upon a crimson scroll, our glory is to slay. One moves in silence by the stream, with sad yet watchful eyes, calm as the patient planet's gleam that walks the clouded skies. Along its front no sabers shine, no blood-red pennons wave. Its banner bears the single line, Our duty is to save. While the millions of Europe have been struggling in the thralls of military despotism, the American people have been, for 100 years, peacefully working out a career of usefulness. The result is, that their industrial successives have placed them at the head of the world in wealth and power. While practically independent herself, America has become indispensable to Europe. 
Without her bountiful supplies of cotton, grain, and meat, millions of Europeans would lack food and clothing. The commercial history of the United States may be set forth in a few words. The net imports, including coin and bullion, $22.5 million, 4.5 million pounds, in 1790, were $75 million, 15 million pounds, in 1830. And in the next term of 50 years, we find them bounding from this figure to $740 million, 148 million pounds. The exports show even a more rapid advance, for these began in 1790 at $20 million, 4 million pounds, reached $60 million, 12 million pounds, in the 40 years to 1830, and during the past half century, we find them $725 million, 145 million pounds, so that in 50 short years, the foreign commerce of the Republic has increased 11-fold. The amounts of imports per capita of the population has increased during the last 50 years from $6.25, 1 pound 5 shillings, to about $15, 3 pounds while exports increased from $5, one pound, to $16.60, three pounds, six shillings. Let us see what the few leading articles are which go to make up this commerce. What did the Republic buy from the world in 1883? Sugar and molasses to the extent of $100 million, 19,875,000 pounds. Surely Brother Jonathan has a sweet tooth, for he spent more for sweet things than for anything else. For wool and woolen goods, he spent $55 million, 11 million pounds. For chemicals, $45 million, 9 million pounds. Even cotton goods, though he exports them himself, he wanted from others, to the tune of $35 million, 7 million pounds. Some curious things in cotton, I suppose, which pleased his fancy, or her fancy, more likely. Silks he paid just a little more for, or $37 million, 7.4 million pounds, went for those. The Scotch says, She never bowed for a silk goon that did not get the sleeve on it. The American woman goes for the full goon and gets it, although now it is generally of domestic manufacture, no matter what may be the label. Raw silk to be manufactured is imported to about one-half the value of imported silks, which proves how very much more is made at home than is bought abroad, the value of the raw silk being many times less than the finished goods. His cup of coffee costs the American $42 million, 8.4 million pounds per year, and tea $17 million, 3.4 million pounds. These are the principal purchases he makes from others. Now what does he sell to these good friends whom he honors with his patronage? He does a thriving business truly in this department. First come his cotton exports. The world bought from him in 1883, $250 million, 50 million pounds. Then his wheat department disposed of $120 million worth, 24 million pounds, and in the form of flour, $55 million more. 11 million pounds. Meat, eggs, butter, and other provisions kept not a few of his hands busy, for no less than 107 million dollars, 
21.4 million pounds, had to be sent forward to satisfy the world's wants. Even petroleum, to the extent of 45 million dollars, 9 million pounds, he sent forth to light the world, and nasty tobacco to end in smoke cost his customers that year no less than 22 million dollars, 4.4 million pounds. Wood and its manufacturers, to the extent of 26.5 million dollars, 5.3 million pounds, was taken, a great deal of it, no doubt, in the shape of furniture. Iron and steel manufacturers make a much better showing than expected, for he really exported these, such as sewing machines, agricultural machinery, and a thousand and one Yankee notions, to the sum of 22.5 million dollars, 4.5 million pounds. And finally, Uncle Sam sends from his big farm some of his millions of live cattle and sheep, and gets $8.5 million, $1.7 million pounds for them. These products are drawn from several departments, which may be classed under the general heads of agriculture, manufactures, mines, forests, etc., and tabulated as follows with the amounts contributed by each. Agriculture, $550 million, $110 million. Pounds. Manufactures, $20.5 million, dollars 4.1 million pounds. Mining, $56,250,000, 11,250,000 pounds. The forest, $7,050,000, 1,410,000 pounds. The fisheries, $7,250,000, 1,250,000 pounds. All others, seven million. $250,000, £1,250,000. Thus does he, the young hopeful, lay under contribution all wealth-producing sources to swell his prosperous and rapidly increasing business with the world. We see that, notwithstanding the almost incredible expansion of home manufactures, the American citizen imports more and more from other lands. See him only fifty years ago, patronizing other people to the extent of six dollars twenty-five cents, one pound five shillings, per year, and now every man, woman, and child spends fifteen dollars, three pounds, for foreign goods. His tariff may be very high and quite outrageous in the opinion of many, yet he buys about three times as much per head under it as he did fifty years ago. It cannot be so very bad after all, although it is nonetheless true that, year after year, America gains firmer control of her own markets for the manufactured articles. Every year sees a decrease of these relatively to the total imports. In crude and partially manufactured articles, imports are increasing. In 1860, for instance, the proportion of these was only 26%, but by uninterrupted advances every decade, it rose in 1885 to 40% of the total importations, while manufactured articles fell from 74 to 60% of the whole. The balance of trade, to which, despite the teaching of economists, Americans still attach great importance, had during the last 10 or 11 years been continually and greatly in favor of the Republic. In the space of 50 years, foreign commerce has increased fivefold, it has nearly doubled since 1860, in spite of the check it received during the war. It increased greatly in 1880, and reached its maximum in 1883, 
Since that time, there has been a falling off of 14% due to the protracted period of depression. Up to the year 1876, with a few exceptions, the imports were in excess of the exports of merchandise, the maximum difference being reached in 1872 when the excess was $182 million, 36.4 million pounds. Since then, the balance has been the other way, the highest figure being reached in 1879, viz. $264 million, 52.8 million pounds. Taking the period from 1860 to 1885, imports increased 63%, while the increase in exports was 129%. It is usual to speak of the Republic as without commerce. Much dire prophesying of coming decay is indulged in because the sea-going commerce is now chiefly carried in foreign ships. The tendency is to limit the term commerce to the carriage of merchandise to and from other countries. So limited, America has indeed little to boast of. The change from wooden to iron and steel ships cut her out of a large part of the carrying trade which no fiscal regulations or lack of regulations can possibly restore. For the same reason that water will not run uphill, ships cannot be sailed by dearer to cheaper countries. Had America 10,000 large ships, their crews from chief engineer to cabin boy would be foreigners because these can be secured cheaper in Liverpool or Antwerp than in New York. Americans can do better than sail the seas for the pittances earned by the men of the older lands. The first cost of ships must necessarily, for the same reason, be much more here than upon the Clyde. If the navigation laws were repealed tomorrow, no American capital would purchase foreign-built ships for trade abroad, and if they did, the flag might indeed be the stars and stripes, but ship and crew would be British. The voice might be the voice of Jacob, but the hand would be the hand of Esau. In no sense would the commercial marine thus created be American or add to American wealth. For generations yet to come, the attempt to become the chief carriers of merchandise, if made, must result in failure and render the Republic ridiculous. Here is the fable which meets the case. Aha, said the turtle to the lion as the latter proudly walked the shore. Any kind of a beast can walk on the land as well as you do, but let us see you do this and then it turned a somersault in the sea. The lion tried. Result, the turtle fed upon the lion for many days. America has no business with ocean navigation till her continent is filled and prices of labor and material are down to the European basis. Let her leave the stormy sea to the motherland, whose home is on the ocean wave, and stick to land as her natural heritage. Columbia's home is on the fertile prairie. Notwithstanding all this, America still manages to do some of the carrying trade in her wooden ships, in the construction of which she has her rivals at a disadvantage, because the timber is here. She carried, in 1880, about $280 million, 56 million pounds, or more than one-sixth of her whole foreign commerce. The coasting trade of America, from which foreigners are excluded, presents a ferro showing, being 34 million tons. The total seagoing tonnage of the nation in 1884 was 3,181,804 tons, which places her next in rank to Britain and far ahead of any other nation. 
From the unique position of Britain as the carrier of the world, it follows that her people have unconsciously been led to attach far too much importance to the foreign trade as it concerns nations in general. Even in her own case, it is trifling compared to her internal commerce. Her railways alone carry three times as much as all her ships, foreign seagoing, and domestic traffic combined. Quote, the milkman who brings the daily portion of milk to him who dwells in city or town, says Edward Atkinson, the American Adam Smith, represents a commerce of vast proportions, almost equal in this country, in its aggregate value, to the whole sum of our foreign importations. Close quote. The home commerce of America, as compared to her foreign, is as 21 to 1, and even Britain's gigantic foreign commerce is only one-sixth as great as the home commerce of America. The shipping engaged in this internal commerce has an aggregate tonnage of 1 million tons, which, added to the seagoing, gives as the total American tonnage engaged in commerce 4,250,000 tons as against the 7 million tons of Britain. The total American traffic with foreign nations is 16 millions of tons. If every ton carried in foreign ships were carried in American ships, the additional trade would not be as great as the natural increase of her home commerce for a single year. Truly a paltry prize to contend for and make such a fuss about. The American coasting tonnage alone more than doubles the entire foreign traffic, 34 as against 16 million tons. While the domestic commerce by rail is reported as 291 and by steamers on lakes and rivers as 25 and a half millions of tons, thus it appears that our internal commerce, of which so little is heard, is more than 20 times greater than the foreign trade one ton of foreign to twenty tons of domestic commerce. Really, there is no greater impostor than the distinguished stranger known as foreign commerce. The interdependence of our states, and hence the commerce between them, is shown in an interesting way by an illustration borrowed from my friend Mr. Edward Atkinson. Quote, a homely illustration in a subject not fitted for poetic treatment nor likely to appeal to the imagination, commerce in hogs. The great prairies of the West grow corn in such abundance that even now, with all our means of intercommunication, it cannot all be used as food, and some of it is consumed as fuel. It often happens that the farmer upon new land, remote from railroads, can get only 15 to 20 cents per bushel for Indian corn, at which price, while it is the best, it is also the cheapest fuel that he can have, and its use is an evidence of good economy and not of waste. Upon the fat prairie lands of the West, the hog is wholesomely fed only upon the corn in the milk or corn in the ear, thence he is carried to the colder climate of Massachusetts, where by the use of that one crop in which New England excels all others, ice, the meat can be packed at all seasons of the year. There it is prepared to serve as food for the workmen of the North, the freemen of the South, or the artisan of Europe, while the blood, dried in a few hours to a fine powder, and sent to the cotton fields of South Carolina and Georgia to be mixed with the phosphate rocks that underlie their coastland, serves to produce the cotton fiber, which furnishes the cheapest and fittest clothing for the larger portion of the inhabitants of the world.
Here, then, is commerce, or men serving each other on a grand scale, all developed within the century, and undreamed of by our ancestors. The vast plains of the West, enriched by countless myriads of buffalo, can spare for years to come a portion of their production force. Commerce sets in motion her thousand wheels, food is borne to those who need it, and they are saved the effort to obtain it on the more sterile soil of the cold north. Commerce turns that very cold to use. The refuse is saved, and commerce has discovered that its use is to clothe the naked in distant lands. Born to the sandy but healthy soils of Georgia and South Carolina, it renovates them with the fertility thus transferred from the prairies of Illinois and Indiana, and presently there comes back to Massachusetts the cotton of the farmers, the well-saved, clean, strong, and even staple, which commerce again has discovered to be worth identifying as the farmer's, not as the planter's crop, made by his own labor and picked by his wife and children. Close quote. Much is said in Britain about the tariff policy of the Republic, but the results of that policy, I fear, are but little understood. The general impression is that the duties charged are so exorbitant as seriously to cripple trade between the old and new lands. So far from this being true, Britain has no customer to whom she sends so much of her manufactures, nor any with whom her trade increases so rapidly. This so-called highly protective and heavily taxed republic imports more British goods than any other people. Here are the figures for 1883, which was a poor year for American business. Britain sent goods to India in that year, valued at 24 millions sterling, to Germany 19 millions, to France 18 millions, and to the Republic 27 millions sterling. The total importations of America that year were $725 million, 145 million pounds, and of this vast sum, more than a full one-third, or $250 million, 50 million pounds, came from Britain and British possessions. $185 million, 37 million pounds, came from Great Britain and Ireland proper. Footnote. The difference in value between this 37 million pounds and the 27 million pounds reported as exports that year from Britain to the United States may be found in the differing values at the place of manufacture in Britain and value in America duty paid. To show how overwhelmingly the Republic buys from Britain, we have but to contrast its purchase from other lands. France, in 1882, supplied only $90 million, 18 million pounds, worth of goods, and Germany but $56 million, 11.2 million pounds worth. The combined trade of these two principal sources of supply after Britain exceeds but little more than one-half of Britain's sum, including British possessions, nor do they combined come near equaling the purchases from Britain proper, for together, France and Germany sent but $146 million, 29.2 million pounds, while Britain sent $196 million, 39.2 million pounds. Britain could lose either France or Germany, and almost both combined as purchasers, and her trade would not suffer as much as from the withdrawal of the much-abused American. 
Is it not time for the monarchy to be just a little mindful of this fact, and to behave itself accordingly toward its dutiful offspring, who year after year increases his patronage, and takes of her manufactures more than he takes from all the rest of the world? The question of free trade in America is one which will not be within the reach of practical politics in the lives of those now living. To bring it about, one of two courses is necessary. Either the revenue must be raised by increased internal taxation, or the duty must be enormously raised upon the only necessaries of life which America imports largely, sugar, coffee, etc. Neither of these seem probable. A new duty upon the food of the people of Britain is just as probable as one in America. Even Democratic President Cleveland, in his first message to Congress, states that any reduction in the tariff should be made in the duties now imposed upon the necessaries of life. The tendency is all in this direction. The second course would be to raise revenue by direct taxation. This is the ideal standard, and the Republic in its march may someday work up to it, and give another advanced political lesson to others. So far, no nation has ever tried even to approach it. Evidently, it is not for our day or generation. What, then, is the possible and consequently the only probable outcome of tariff discussion? Nothing beyond a possible gradual reduction of duties at intervals of some years, say five or six percent each decade. But these reductions, speaking generally, will be made only upon such articles as can be manufactured profitably here, with lower than the existing duties, nor will the duties be lowered to a point which will cripple the home manufacturer. The question is not now which policy is the better for a new nation, free trade or protection, but how is the huge fabric of manufactures to be dealt with, the greatest in the world as we have seen? It has been called into existence upon certain conditions and has accommodated itself thereto. The conservatism of the democracy is so ingrained as to justify one in prophesying that great care will be taken not to disturb it unduly. I often hear surprise expressed in Europe that the vast body of consumers should bear so contentedly the extra cost upon what they purchase, the result of heavy duties. The explanation is twofold. First, manufacturers are spreading rapidly over most of the states. The southern states of Alabama, Tennessee, Missouri, and others, for instance, are really protective states now from this cause, as are Minnesota and Michigan in the northwest. But the second cause lies much deeper. Prices of articles are no longer generally fixed by the foreign, but by the home competition. One instance may illustrate many other branches in which the consumers buy what they need very cheap, in many cases about as cheap as the European does, wholly irrespective of duty. The duty upon steel rails is, say, $17.50, £3.11 shillings per ton, market price in Britain, £5 shipside Liverpool, total in New York, provided they were transported and laid down there for nothing, would still be $42.50 or £8.10. shillings. The railroads of America have had no difficulty in purchasing hundreds of thousands of tons at $28, £5.12, shillings, and they know well that if any considerable portion of their requirements had to come from abroad, the cost would very greatly exceed this. In clothing, which was formerly the article upon which the greatest difference in price existed between the two countries, the case is much the same. 
Some competent friends who have been visiting us assure me that prices generally are as cheap as at home, and in some cases even cheaper. Foreign competition has been recommended as the necessary and certain cure against exorbitant profits being exacted by the home manufacturer to the detriment of the consumer. Very good, but precisely the same cure is found from vigorous home competition. As far as the foreigner was concerned, as we have seen in the case of steel rails, the American manufacturer might have had $42.50 per ton for rails which he was forced to sell for $28, which was only the British price, $25 with a fair rate of transportation to New York, and expenses incident thereto, without a penny added for duty. What forced him to do so and give the consumer rails for $28? Home competition. Even our monarchical friends in Canada bought steel rails from American mills last year because the cost was less than was demanded for those of British manufacture, although both were alike as to duty. I merely venture to give the facts bearing upon the present aspect of the question as far as the Republic is concerned, that those in Europe who bewail the hard fate of the consumer here may be comforted, for truly he is not paying the fair cost of his supplies plus the duty, but only the unprecedentedly low prices established by the close and unremitting competition of the home manufacturers, and these prices, as has been shown in the chapter on manufacturers, are, with rare exceptions, not much above those of Britain. It is, for these reasons, that the consumer is not troubling himself, and cannot be made to trouble himself, very greatly with the question of the tariff. Far be it from me to retard the march of the world towards the free and unrestricted interchange of commodities. When the democracy obtains sway throughout the earth, the nations will become friends and brothers, instead of being, as now, the prey of the monarchical and aristocratic ruling classes, and always warring with each other, Standing armies and warships will be of the past, and men will then begin to destroy custom houses as relics of a barbarous monarchical age, not altogether from the low plane of economic gain or loss, but strongly impelled thereto from the higher standpoint of the brotherhood of man. All restriction upon the products of other lands will then seem unworthy of any member of the race, and the dawn of that day will have come when man to man the world o'er shall brothers be and all that end of chapter 12